0: Good day, you're listening to the 83rd edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thank you for tuning in. On the program today, I'm going to be featuring a conversation I had with longtime anti poverty organizer John Clark. John organized for years with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty in Toronto, OCAP, and right now is actually teaching at York University, um, looking at uh, social movements um, this conversation is part of a series of exchanges that I'm uh, working on through Free City Radio in collaboration with the Breach Media Project um, and they were looking at basically um, the reality of a minority government in Canada uh, the elections that happened uh, in the fall uh, brought another minority government for Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party and um, And really, we wanted to visit a series of conversations um, here to look at what um, social movements can do to respond to this political situation. How can demands be made? What do those demands look like? Um, Can uh, street-level and community-level organizing uh, play a role in uh, attaining tangible gains for social movements uh, for poor working people? Uh, communities uh, struggling with systemic oppression, Indigenous communities, um, and uh, immigrant, migrant communities, what would uh, it look like to really sort of seek out tangible campaign goals and uh, victories for social movements at this time in Canada. So this is part of a series of conversations that I'm working on with the Breach Media. Look them up. Uh, Here's my full conversation with John Clark. There will be an excerpt and some text to accompany it on the breach, and you can look that up soon. Um, And here's my conversation with John. I'm joined by longtime social justice activist uh, in Toronto, John Clark, uh, who has uh, organized against poverty, uh, of course, with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, um, and is now Teaching at York University. Um, I uh, reached out to John as part of this series uh, for The Breach about um, what social movements are doing to respond to the political reality in Canada, a uh, minority government in the context of COVID and the pandemic. Uh, so there's lots to get into here, but first I'll just say hi. Hi, John. Hi, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good thanks for doing this um so i guess maybe we can just start first um around the crisis of homelessness and um i mean there's a lot of systemic issues at play there but toronto downtown uh there's been uh very uh important actions that have taken place uh, around the tent city and uh, the violence of both um, security services, the police, in terms of not um, uh, recognizing the magnitude of the crisis, and when it's has been, you know, articulated, um, people are facing not just these yeah. systemic violence, but the actual physical violence. So, what has happened at Ten City in Toronto, and why is it important in this contemporary moment?
1: Well what you've seen i mean and it's by no means confined to toronto very much a very gruesome episode along the same lines unfolded in halifax for example certainly people in vancouver and cities across the country experiencing this but no question that toronto for various reasons constitutes uh, a, an epicenter with regards to the the crisis of destitution uh, people come to toronto because it's a major center and also uh, in terms of the winters here they're not really as bad even as montreal or ottawa so you know for various reasons people are drawn to try to survive in toronto and uh during the uh during the pandemic crisis uh if homelessness constitutes an act of social abandonment by the people who run society then obviously this was the ultimate expression Uh, In the middle of a pandemic, people were not adequately protected. And one of the ways in which people reacted was to band together and form encampments, often, not always, but often in public parks. Now, that's that's not a unique phenomenon that we've never seen before, but what we saw is a complete proliferation for people who are familiar with the situation of visible homelessness in Vancouver, for example, you start to see in public parks something that resembles that, right? Um, uh, So so what then, of course, unfolds is that the city makes, uh, you know, sort of is not sure quite how to respond. The thing is clearly in a very bad situation they're not prepared to take the measures necessary to provide a really adequate alternative and then what happens is uh the pandemic starts to come to an end or they believe they're close enough to the end that they can start to think in terms of business as usual again and so clearly these parks have become for them an enormous problem that they're not prepared to see institutionalised, and so they start to organise brutal, really brutal, major police operations to clear people out, and uh, that's what we've seen in, in you know several examples of this, and it, and it speaks to, it speaks to the homeless crisis, and it speaks to the enormity of a you know a, a city where forty percent of the world's mining capital was raised on the stock exchange, a city of enormous wealth that is capable of such brutal acts against people whose only crime is to be is to be rendered destitute by this society. But it speaks to, I think, broadly because we can see homelessness is only an extreme example of the the whole agenda that this society is inflicting on people. it speaks to the kind of the, it speaks to what kind of a recovery are we talking about? What what is the post-pandemic reality? You know, uh, Joe Biden and his uh, G7 friends get together in Cornwall and uh, talk about uh, build back better. Uh, but I, I think you know there's a snippet, a slice of life about the the possibilities for building back better if this system is left to its uh, own devices. So. In and of its own right an enormous injustice but an injustice that speaks to something much broader as far as i'm concerned
0: um can you just share a little bit about the ways that um social housing policy uh, particularly on the part of the liberal government uh today but also you know going back to the 1990s with the the neoliberal cuts to uh social housing and particularly to cooperative housing that ha- happened in 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 a previous liberal government so i'm just i'm bringing this up because i think often there's this sort of understanding that um yes okay there's economic inequality and people um are um you know experiencing this this extreme economic injustice they end up homeless however there's these actual policies policy decisions that that create the context for this so i'm just wondering particularly around the liberal party can can you highlight a few concrete like moments that are important to understanding the policies that have led to this situation
1: well yeah i mean i mean the the whole neoliberal period from the 1970s through to the to recent times uh has been obviously a process of intensified exploitation and of gutting amongst other things, gutting of the the social infrastructure, the the systems of social provision. You know, Margaret Thatcher infamously said, there's no such thing as society. The the notion that governments don't play a role or should play a substantially reduced role in providing for the needs of people. Um, And really, I mean, it's, it's an historical anomaly in that this country, you have a conservative party that is supposedly the hard cutting edge. And then you have a more centrist and mild and moderate liberal party. But in fact, the process of dismantling the social infrastructure, the, 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 at the federal level, the liberals played the key role. Um, it, uh, it was Chrétien and Martin who, who in the 90s, uh, devastated uh, income support systems and social assistance systems throughout the country by destroying the canada assistance plan and other such things and in the in the realms of housing it, it is them and it is the liberal party that played the absolutely decisive role in pulling uh the federal government and then the, the provinces followed suit um pulling them out of the uh, of the provision of social housing so uh the lion's share of the situation is really is really uh is really in 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 the lap of the of the liberal party and not the conservatives actually not to deny the role of stephen harper and brian Mulrooney and all these things they were enormous but but the liberal party played the absolutely decisive role and so recently you have justin trudeau's uh you know infamous national housing strategy uh, that was mockingly referred to by uh by in a piece that was co-written by gene swanson who's now a, a, a councilor in Vancouver uh labeled it a national gentrification strategy the whole idea was to uh, provide inducements to private development uh, and to really destroy any commitment even further to any system of public housing or, or social housing. So uh, the, the the kind of talk that, you know, that we hear today coming from Trudeau, his, uh, his, uh, his national housing strategy, or now he's got a housing minister that he's appointed and this kind of thing, it's just fluff. It's just fluff to cover the reality. We've arrived at a situation. Toronto City Council just had a major initiative on the same lines. We've reached a point where on Toronto, Toronto City Council, both right and dubiously left, are united around the uh, around the proposition that Something like social housing is a complete anachronism. You wouldn't even consider something like that. What is required is to provide inducements to developers and private interests so that as they go about this reckless drive to create an absolutely unsustainable bubble of luxury housing, they will throw in uh, a, few, uh, a few extra units of dubiously affordable housing for, uh, for, for poor people so yes i mean on the area in the area of housing uh, the situation is utterly out of control i mean i just see a piece that came across my news feed sh- suggesting that in ontario at the moment 25% of home sales are speculative ventures are bought up by, are bought up by people who are who who are not going to live in them uh, i mean housing the commodification of housing and its treatment as a commodity has become one of the linchpins of of the whole brutal, inhuman agenda that's unfolding, and in the process is creating a speculative bubble that, that is threatened to drag down the uh, the Canadian economy as a whole.
0: Okay, so so on this point of speculation and housing market, um, there's been no real moves. Also from the you know. Uh, at least affiliating in a public sense to left ideas, the project Montreal administration in Montreal has done very little to confront real estate capital, uh, and the proliferation of condos and speculative, um, housing developments. I know it's the same in Toronto. Can, can you just talk about the ways that like, just from all your experience, like to actually address these issues, there needs to be a confrontation. But the sort of like liberal approach or like social democratic approach in the in the context of Project Montreal is that there is no confrontation with real estate capital.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely, and I think it needs to be said that we need to understand that in Canada we have at the moment the worst situation. Right? Uh, I mean, the 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 gap between uh, between uh, real income and uh, and house prices in Canada has opened up in a way that no nowhere within the OEDC, with the possible exception of New Zealand do you see such uh, do you see such disparities uh the the unaffordability of housing it's grim in in, in Toronto it's considerably worse than that in Vancouver has opened up uh, in ways that 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 have with the exception perhaps of Hong Kong, there are no, uh, there are no comparisons. Uh, and so uh, the, the degree of speculative parasitism that is, uh, that is eating away at the provision of the vital social and human need of housing has no rival anywhere else in the, in, the, in, the, in the developed world. The situation at the moment with regards to the housing bubble is actually far worse than it is in the United States. And, and worse than it was before the 2008 crash in the United States. So so that's that's the reality of the situation. And and the notion that all we can do is win some crumbs from the developers banquet table is 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 a disgusting parody of 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 the idea of building social movements and engaging in struggles. I mean, the housing front is probably one of the key ones, and it, it speaks with particular clarity to the whole question of what the post-pandemic future is going to look like uh, and those who hope it's going to be some new uh, keynesian golden age brought delivered to us from on high i think i think i'm making the greatest mistake possible um we see i, I don't seem i'm not just, this is not just a tale of woe i'm not trying to sort of spell out the notion that it's hopeless we've seen during this pandemic across the world the capacity of people to fight back right the black lives matter mobilization following the murder of george floyd uh, george george floyd was the greatest mobilization uh, uh that, that had taken place in the united states even greater than during the period of the civil rights and, and the ghetto rebellions um uh, we've seen we've just seen the indian farmers win this historic victory over Modi and his attempt to turn India into a neoliberal laboratory. Uh, I mean, an incredible, incredible fight back. And we've seen those fights resonate in Canada as well. We've seen these these mobilizations happening. We're seeing right now and uh, uh, land defenders giving a lead. We, we've seen people resist the, uh, the agenda of abandonment. We've seen impressive mobilizations against evictions taking place. We're, we're seeing the beginnings of a, a revival of militancy within the trade union movement i mean these things are all enormously important but i think that's the way forward it's 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 to believe that those in economic and political power are, are going to be appealed to and are going to try and invent a kind gentler brand of capitalism uh, I, I think that's always a delusion but at the moment it's, it's a kind of a it's
0: a it's a, it's a deranged
1: folly to, uh, to 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 think in those terms
0: just on this particular point uh, around thank you so much for sharing all that John the particular point around the idea of giving incentives to developers to to include some subsidized housing units um some people sort of point to that as you know um a fix some sort of move in the right direction can you just underline a bit more why um that is not a victory uh and also just just uh, like off share a bit more about how that doesn't actually amount to an addressing of the crisis of inequality and housing
1: well i mean i i think it's a i think it's a mistake uh i mean obviously If someone receives a subsidised unit, I'm certainly not going to be. Uh, I'm not going to be denouncing anyone who's able to to win whatever whatever handhold they can in this highly uh, imperfect uh, situation. But uh, but the problem I think with the whole approach is that in return for these crumbs, what you're accepting is essentially the hegemony of of, of, of capitalist vested interests. You're saying. Yes, we'll give you the land. We'll stand back. We'll allow you to build whatever you want. Uh, you can you can inflate this massive, unsustainable speculative bubble that's going to claps like a house of cards uh, sooner or later. You can do all these things no matter how destructive, no matter how reckless, uh, no matter how uh, impossible the future you're creating, as long as you just make a few token concessions that we can sell out there when when we're seeking re-election and present ourselves as progressives. Uh, And and I think, no, we can't accept the kind of future that's being built. And I mean, I say this at a time when BC is flooding. I I say this at a time when we're dealing with a a global pandemic. It must be clear that there is no future uh, that's going to be provided to us by these people, not in housing policy, but not in anything. Uh, We've got to fight them we've got to we've got to we can't ask them to be just kinder and gentler and nicer because they can always do that in words they're very good at you know compassionate capitalism and great resets and they go away to davos and 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 meet in the swiss alps and talk about how wonderful they are but no we we've got to fight these people we've got to fight this system and that's that's the reality
0: so just a final point like the critique towards like liberal Party's housing policy um i i guess uh, one of the reasons we're recording these conversations is to try to understand the political moment uh in canada because obviously liberal party is interested in holding on to power there's uh the ndp is holding a balance of power in some ways um what role like do you think that social movements can play in challenging um and Uh, confronting, you know, these interests in this in this moment, because there is uh, a lot more political uh, uncertainty for the Liberal Party.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the uncertainty of the the Liberal Party is probably the same as uh, the Democrats in the US find themselves experiencing a very similar kind of a a situation. The parties of the neoliberal centre have become incredibly discredited. So, uh, so Trudeau clings to power as again a minority regime, uh, really by default, really because a clear enough alternative hasn't been created that that people are going to move towards it. Uh, the Conservative Party is in disarray in various ways, and I would argue that the NDP is certainly uh, suffers from a perennial inability to open up enough daylight between itself and the neoliberal uh, and the neoliberal centre, uh, and that creates this that creates this situation of of minority government. Now, some people see in that an incredible opportunity in and of itself. I, I mean. This is the second time around on minority governments and yes i mean the ndp put a bit of pressure and there were some measures that were taken that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise and a few minor concessions made but fundamentally the liberals are proceeding with their agenda they've dismantled the uh, necessarily, somewhat elevated income support protections they gave during the uh, during the period of pandemic lockdown, uh, they're moving to restore an agenda that's going to be highly exploitative and and, and regressive. Um, it may be that minority governments could provide uh, inherently unstable could be to the advantage of an ascendant and powerful social movement. If we had rejuvenated trade unions and if we had uh, social movements that were massive and powerful, uh, the political crisis of a minority liberal government would be, I think, advantageous. But only in a very secondary and minor way as far as i'm concerned does a minority government in and of itself uh, present some improved possibilities for a progressive agenda uh, there is no progressive agenda except the one we fight for and uh, and that i think is the key lesson that we've got to take into the period ahead and quite honestly given that all of the parties in the end will adapt themselves to the prevailing agenda, I, I, I'd far sooner, if we if had to be absolutely blunt about it, I think we could win more with a powerful social mobilization in this country from a majority conservative government uh, than we would obtain if we elected an NDP government and just sat back and hoped for the best. I think the, the decisive question is not on Parliament Hill. It, it's in the workplaces, in the streets, and in the kinds of struggles
0: that we're in a position to take up. Thanks for taking the time today, John. Thanks, Stefan. This was an exchange with John Clark, uh, who is an organizer, a community activist, long-time, um, really excellent um, you know, presence in Toronto, uh, who worked for years with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty and is now teaching um, social justice studies at York University. Uh, John, I think, makes some very important points about Uh, the critical importance of social movements in the context of a minority government in Canada, uh, how demands of social movements can be made uh, at this time, and the importance of retaining our support and critical thinking around the possibilities of street-level mobilizations. And I really want to thank John for taking the time. This is part of a series of conversations that I am having with the Breach Media. And uh, basically we're looking at how, you know, this moment of a minority government in Canada speaks to um, uh, politically what is possible for activists at this time. So thank you so much to John for being on the program and thanks to the Breach Media for supporting this interview series. Um, I'll now go to a piece of music that was actually part of a benefit album for the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. Uh, that was called Bakunin's Bum. Two of my friends um, worked on tracks for that album Norman Navratsky and Aidan Gert. Um, so, this is a track called There's a Place for Everyone, and you'll hear a longtime uh, Ontario Coalition Against Poverty organizer, Sue Collis, speaking. I'll talk to you soon, um, and please tell a friend about Free City Radio. Uh, encourage them to subscribe to the podcast. I'm Stefan Christoph. Uh, If you want to reach me about anything, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. And I'm on Twitter at spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And here's uh, There's a Place for Everyone by Bakunin's Bum. Talk to you soon. Take it easy.
2: And, 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 and when we approach things in the way that the uncompromising way that we do, that there's an allowance for people to take their place where they see their place as being in that. Um, and, and uh, you know, while uh, on one hand, you know, people aren't um, dismissed or, or uh, uh, you know, lectured, whatever, for, for throwing a rock at a cop's head at the same time. You know, people aren't dismissed for, for being at the back of a crowd either um, or for uh, you know uh, uh, doing research for the organization on an issue that we're working on or for um, you know being a, you know person who maintains our radio show or puts together that publication or um, you know does intake work for, for uh, cases or or represents people in court I mean there's all these different elements and I, I don't think um, I don't think that we can worry uh, about alienation in the sense that it, I think it's vital to, to, to put out out there what your organization stands for and the fact that, that we will defend ourselves physically when that you know needs to happen. That we will fight physically when that needs to happen. Because otherwise people don't know what they're signing on for, otherwise it's a lie. Um, and people have to be able to make that decision because it's fair and just for that person but also because we have to you know we want people who agree with us to come to our organization we don't want to have to deal with um you know debates around these issues when that is solidly and wholly and conclusively you know how we operate and what our orientation is